Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is Recode Media with Peter Koska. That's me speaking to you from Vox Media headquarters in New York City. In the second podcast room, that means we're growing because we need more room for more podcasts. But enough about us. Let's introduce you to this week's guest, Emily Ramshaw, Editor-in-Chief, Texas Tribune. You got it. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you have listened to this podcast, you know that local journalism is struggling. If you've listened to this podcast, you might know that the Texas Tribune is a rare counterexample of local journalism that works. I know all about that and how Emily is making all of that happen. Um, you've been there 10 years? I have since day one. I was the person out buying reams of paper and staplers on our very first day. I want to I read a quote. Hopefully it's accurate. Uh-oh. This is about you leaving the Dallas Morning News to go to what was then a tiny, unproven startup. Oh, man, I know exactly where you're paper. going here. It's good. It's a good thing. I feel and still feel that the newspaper business is in serious crisis. This is back in 2009. I'm not content to cling to a deck chair and go down with a sinking ship. We're trying to prepare for the next incarnation of journalism. If this venture is going to work, it's going to work because serious, talented journalists were brave enough to take the risk. That's you. I mean, I guess so. Man, you know, that quote did not make me any fans in the newspaper business. Really? Yeah, I I was like, you know, 25 years old, and I thought I had all the answers and that clinging to a deck chair on the uh, Titanic imagery didn't exactly go over well. But accurate. I have to say, I mean, this many years later, it does feel a little bit prescient. You know, it was was certainly the right move, um, you know, at the right moment. So you're in your mid-20s. First job, first job out of school? This is my first job out of college. Um, my mom and dad are both journalists, so I have it in my blood. I grew up in the D.C. area. They were both um, Washington correspondents for different news organizations. And they didn't try to talk you out of this? Oh, of course they tried to talk me out of it. But they also, like, loved their jobs. You know, I should have been talked out of it when, like, family vacations got ruined because of the Gulf War. Yeah. There were all those it's kinds of— Yeah, there were some, there were some clues, context clues. Um, but, you know, I knew I wanted to be, a, a, I thought, a newspaper journalist from day one. And, you know, as the years progressed, obviously my first newspaper job, it was at the Dallas Morning News. But I was watching my parents' careers and I was watching the pressures that their news organizations were under uh, and, you know, the pressure they were feeling to either lay people off or, you know, uh, rethink their own careers. And in my first four years at the Dallas Morning News, there were four rounds of layoffs. And that's, so, and that's 2005 through 2009. That's that's Pre-Lehman. 2003 through 2007. Okay. Yes. And, you know, I was like the cheapest kid there. I think my starting salary my first year was like $35,000. Uh, I knew I wasn't at risk of being laid off because I worked my tail off and I was super cheap. 
But suddenly everybody I cared about started to be laid off. And at that point, that sound I— is, That sound is my throat clenching yeah. a little bit, being an old person. It's right. I mean, people who are senior in their careers, uh-huh. more experienced, cost more money. And, you know, it was—there was nothing they could do about it. It was these external pressures in their organization. So I did what any reasonable person would consider doing. I uh, took the LSAT. If you could fail the LSAT, I basically failed the LSAT. Wow. Uh, Congratulations. Thanks. Wept, took it a second time, uh, did a point worse than I did the first time around, and thought, well, this is not going to be. So around that time, I was lucky enough that an Austin venture capitalist and two senior journalists uh, in Austin approached me very quietly and said, you know, we have this idea for a way to do journalism differently. To That's pay John for Thornton, yes. Evan Smith. And Ross Ramsey, the executive editor mm-hmm. of The Tribune. Three brilliant guys. And uh, I had nothing else to lose. I, you know, wasn't married. I had no kids. Figured if it failed, I'd Maybe take that LSAT a third time. We're putting together a startup newspaper. News organization, digital news organization. Uh-huh. No w- paper. Was it from the get-go, it was going to be a nonprofit? Absolutely. And basically, the initial pitch to me was the current business model is broken. We think there's a nonprofit version of this that works with a you know very diversified revenue stream that I can talk to you about till I'm blue in the face. And we think you should come take this risk. You know, we're hiring the seven best journalists we can find in Texas to build this product that is state house news for Texans and that we're going to offer free of charge to every Texas newspaper that's cutting its staff. We're going to cover capital. the state house and related related facilities uh, in Austin. Exactly. We're going to cover state government. Yeah. Make and it available for free. Absolutely. And, the, you know, one of the biggest issues with all these other newspapers, including the Dallas Morning News, was that as they were forced to reduce their staff and contract, one of the first places they did it was in the state capitol. And so suddenly, you know, you have a 180 Texas legislators in the capitol, uh, 30 Texas um, representatives in Congress, and, you know, you didn't have very many eyes on the ball anymore. And we, we know we can talk about why that's a problem. Um, I want to flash forward to today. We'll, we'll go back and forth in time. So I was looking at your 2018 numbers, $9 million total yep, revenue. We're about 10, almost $10 million revenue. We have a, you know, that first staff was about seven people. We have almost 70 staffers right now. We have the largest capital press corps of any news organization in the country. And it's a nonprofit, but you are, you are, you are in the black. We are definitely in the black, yes. And so, so we found so a model that works You can for pay us. for 70 people on $9 million a year, and that money comes from? That money comes from five primary sources uh, that I'll just list off really quickly. It's foundation grants, major philanthropy from very wealthy and generous individuals. We have a really robust membership program, people who pay anywhere between 30 bucks and 1000 bucks a year. Even though they don't have do. to. They don't have to. That's the NPR or local public radio model. Any exactly. They give a shit. They care about what we're doing and they, you know, they want We like what you're doing. We're throwing you some money. Maybe you'll give us a tote bag, but that's not why we're signing Exactly. Up. We don't even have tote bags yet. Someday. Yeah. Um, corporate underwriting, uh, which to the untrained eye obviously looks like advertising. It's messaging from corporate sponsors. And then uh, something the Tribune has done and that's pretty unique, less unique today, but was unique when we started is we have a really big events business. So we have a, you know, 50 plus uh, live events where we bring policymakers into close contact with the people they represent. And then we have this three-day uh, Lollapalooza for Texas policy nerds called the Texas Tribune we Festival. We call it the Code Festival for, for Texas. Exactly. We should, yes, we should, yes. we should, I should do my disclosure here. Well, one of my bosses, Trey Pedret, is, is on your board. Uh, yes, an, an esteemed member of our board. Yeah. And, so, and about half of your money, though, comes from gifts, right? It's underwriting or not yep. underwriting. You're calling it corporate gifts, large individual donors. Yes. 
And that's been sort of the the pie chart for a long time? Yeah, I think the pie chart of those buckets that I just talked to you about has gotten more and more um, equalized, diversified over time. So, you know, if you go down that list I just talked about, it's basically like 20 to 25 percent in each of those buckets. With membership, by the way, being an, you know, increasing share of that. And if you want to dive into this, because you're a nonprofit, um, you've got filings, you can go see the breakdown, you can see exactly how much you made last year. That's a little... Oh, great. Actually, it's, hopefully you saw what I made uh, a couple of years ago. I think we're, that's right. We got, we're just, I think, undergoing our audit, so all those new numbers will be up soon. Well, but, those numbers are up. Yikes. Um, Transparency and, 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 in action. Yeah, and you guys have a, a, an annual report where you break down sort of, here's where the money comes by source. It's, it's full transparency. You can see how the business works and is supposed to work. And you can see, you know, down to the dollars and cents, exactly every amount, every individual or any corporate corporate underwriter has given us. We also disclose it on the bottom of every single one of our stories. So if anybody who has underwritten the Tribune at any point is mentioned in that story, we have to, you know, sift through that whole list of people and stick it on the bottom of a story. So it's and again, transparent. Just, just to level set, sort of the, explain the sort of journalism you guys are doing today in 2019. Where, what, if you're in Texas, what are you turning to the Texas Tribune for? Sure. Uh, basically, anything that touches the state legislature or touches Texans in Congress or the people who run run for all of those seats. So we're sort still of, your core. Oh, completely. And it's very much a seasonal news organization, right? So we're either, our legislature's either in session, which we just finished here a few days ago, and then it's, you know, just a crazy, crazy six-month window, or we're in election season, and that bounces back and forth between, you know, tons of people running for congressional and legislative seats, and, you know, we've been, I would say, blessed to have had uh, several presidential candidates who are big names from Texas, mm-hmm. whether it's Rick Perry, Ted Cruz, you know, last time around uh, to Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro this time around. How many people are on the Beto beat this year? Uh, we have uh, one to two people full time on the Beto beat. You know, we have people out on the trail, um, you know, almost around the clock. That's pretty traditional for us. But we also have folks on the Texas-Mexico border. So we have a bureau in El Paso and a sort of a part-time bureau in the Rio Grande Valley. And we have a D.C. bureau in addition to having a Dallas bureau. So the we're, D.C. bureau is new. I assume Dallas is relatively new. Uh, D.C. we've had for several years okay. now, so we've been covering Congress for several years. Uh, Dallas, uh, just a couple years old. Um, and I think uh, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, we'll have an outpost in Houston as well. So it's still, it's it's around policy. Um, I know, like, you guys flexed out when when the, the border story was totally. particularly hot. You had the resources to mm-hmm. send people down there. But you're not doing sort of local news. You're not going to cover local crime news. You're not gonna, who's in charge of my pothole, any of that stuff. Exactly. So uh, we don't cover municipal government at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, you know, I don't foresee in the imminent future that that would be something that we would do. And you're also not doing sports and arts and all the no sort of sports, standard no newspaper mix. Exactly. No crime. I mean, it's a very deeply state politics and policy. So who is the audience for that? today, and where, and where do you want that audience to go? So, I mean, I think over the last several years, early on in the Tribune's uh, existence, you know, we really saw deep penetration with these super insiders, you know, the people who absolutely needed the Texas Tribune to do their there. jobs. Exactly. Or they would like to work there, or they have interests there. These are, you know, lobbyists. These are policymakers. If you walk around the floor of the Texas House, for example, you'll see all the lawmakers with their laptops open and you'll see, you know, the Texas Tribune up. In some ways analogous to Politico in Washington, totally. D.C. It right? was very much like Politico in Washington, D.C., Politico for Texas. Our aim and our strategic vision is obviously to be more meaningful to a hell of a lot more Texans than that. So even if you're not tracking a particular bill, 
the Texas Tribune will be relevant to you because? The next concentric circle out. So you're not a lobbyist, you're not a policymaker, but maybe you care deeply about a single issue. You know, maybe public education or universal pre-K is your jam. Or, uh, you know, maybe you really deeply care about women's health issues and you're interested in seeing what's happening at the Texas Capitol. We think there are people who care deeply about municipal issues, people who are, you know, show up uh, to speak on housing developments at City Hall, stuff like that. Those people should also be interested in the Tribune. And so it's our responsibility to keep widening that circle. So by web publishing standards, it's a small publication, 2 million uniques, give or take, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So under any other sort of normal uh, uh, business metrics, you can't support 70 people on that. You can barely support a couple people. So how does that work then? Is it mm-hmm. because you're, you've got so much of the money is just coming from donors? We're not beholden to the, you know, crazy traffic CPMs yep. that a lot of other news organizations are. We don't have to play in the clickbait space um, because basically our, our mission is so defined and so distinct. So, you know, we're going to donors and to sponsors and saying, you know, okay, we may you may not be reaching 5 million people a month, but you're reaching 2 million serious influencers a month, and you're reaching the people who, you know, are uh, pushing the levers of state government. I know a pitch like that. You do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's familiar to me. <laughs> so, you know, you know it firsthand. But I think it's also um, gives us a lot more flexibility to really, like, um, feed people their vegetables. And obviously, we're trying to do it in a fun way, right? Like, with the candy coating on all these things. But the goal for us is not massive clickbait and massive traffic. The goal for us is steady growth, steady audience growth. And also, one thing that's important is we reach people not just on our website. So, you know, on any given day, if you were to be in El Paso or Abilene, you would pick up a newspaper and you'd see them filled with Texas Tribune stories. What's your fancy word for for advertiser? Underwriter? Uh, Corporate underwriter. Okay. So Mm -hmm. we're going to take a quick break to hear from someone who may be a corporate (laughs) underwriter. Be right back with Emily. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Back here with Emily Ramshaw, Editor-in-Chief. Texas Tribune. We were just explaining why you're not beholden to to clickbait. There is an argument from people who work on the web and whose business is getting big audiences that big audiences are good. It means lots of people are reading your stuff. That's a good thing. How do you measure success if you're not measuring it? First of all, are you measuring the success of an individual story? We absolutely are measuring the success of individual stories. You know, we pay attention. We have goals for how many people that we're reaching. But we calculate our audience in a different way than I think newsrooms do that are simply focused on how many eyeballs are on each individual story. And for us, it's sort of a hybrid. You know, yes, we care about how many people are reaching stories on our website. Uh, We also care about whether they're reading that um, piece of work in their local news organization or watching it on TV on their local TV station. We care about whether those folks are coming to our events. We care about whether they're engaging with us on our private Facebook channels. I mean, we are... We're seeking to build a community. That sounds cliche and lame, I know, but it's really the truth. I mean, we're we're seeking to build this comprehensive community, not just... Uh, it's not just a one-way relationship. That's very good and not cliche and not lame. But are you taking into account, look, this story did well. There's an audience for this. Let's do more of it, not because we're going to generate this many more pennies in advertising, but because... 
our readers are telling us they want it? Uh, or is there a version of it that says, this story actually converted this many new members? That's sort of in the subscription version, uh, subscription business model, that's the, you know, this story convert. Either right. of those things work for you? The former, not the latter. So we don't have a situation where we say, you know what, this this story converted a lot of people. Um, what we do have is, oh, my God, can you believe how much traffic this particular issue is getting? Boy, we really didn't see that, you know, this issue on the border would get as much attention as it is. Let's deploy even more resources there. Let's start a crowdfund so that we can make sure that we have the money to keep covering that issue. So we have our own version of it. But we've focused a lot more in the last couple of years on um, audience uh, engagement and audience storytelling. We hired a community reporter who was responsible for sort of seeking the stories that were the most viral or bubbling up in communities and trying to find ways to tell those stories. So, I mean, I think, yes, absolutely, we've started listening to our audience um, way better than we used to, as have lots of other news organizations. It's just different on the flip side. What's a surprising story where you didn't think there was an audience for it? Are you surprised at the the audience you did get for it? Of course, one of the biggest surprises, I knew that Texans cared deeply about abortion issues. Obviously, you know, this is a, a political hot potato, depending on where you are. We live-streamed several years ago this now very famous filibuster by a, who was then a state senator, Wendy Davis. Mm-hmm. She filibustered, you know, 11 to 13 hours wearing her pink Mizuno sneakers. All over Facebook. Uh, all over Facebook, but the Texas Tribune live-streamed it, and it was very that new. That was your stream that was, I was watching it was on Facebook. It was our stream, and um, we had, you know, uh, just hundreds of thousands of people tuning in, including the president of the United States at the time, who was tweeting about it. Barack Obama tweeted about it. We could tell where people were watching in real time, and people were watching, like, in Australia. People were watching in India. So, I mean, I think that was um, that was an event that really put the Tribune on the map. I knew it would be of great interest. I did not know it would explode the way it did. So you guys are um, state from the get-go. We're nonpartisan. The assumption is you get a bunch of journalists together. Unless there's a very specific reason for them to be on the conservative end of the idea of the spectrum, they're going to be middle slash left leaning. So when it comes to an issue like abortion, um, how much time are you guys spending saying, "Well, there's two sides to this. We got to make sure we hear from both voices," versus saying, "No, there's there's one side here." The thing that was really astonishing to me, so I grew up in the D.C. area, and the thing that was most astonishing to me coming to Texas is how many gray areas there were and, you know, strange bedfellows on particular issues. And the politics are far far more complex than just there are people on the left and people Mm -hmm. on the right. And I think, you know, I agree with you. If you put a bunch of journalists together, I think, you know, if you forced all the people in the room to to reveal how they voted. You don't even need to. Right. You know, all kind of know. But I think we have a responsibility that's to the entire state of Texas and the people who are reading us are all over the political spectrum. And the people who support the Texas Tribune are all over the political spectrum. It's a a red state. It's a a red state. With lots of blue dots all over, including Austin, where you're based. Yep, Austin for sure. And, you know, the urban cores in Texas are increasingly uh, increasingly liberal, which is making the politics really fascinating. So, you know, on the abortion issue, yes, I I think we can cover abortion in a way that is, um, you know, very straightforward and transparent to both sides of the issue. I think, you know, where there are bigger challenges for me are stories Stories around like climate change, which uh-huh. is a fact, and a lot of the state's leadership in Texas, you know, flatly denies, uh, or issues around, you know, uh, human rights uh, for same-sex couples. There are areas where I think you can uh, clearly cover the whole scope of the issue from right to left, and there are areas where you can't play this game of saying, you know, what there are two sides to this story. And and when you do wade into that stuff, where it, you know it's going to be fraud, and you know there's a, a percentage of your readers and or maybe your your sponsors. Right, who are going to have a problem with the way you might you might discuss climate change? How do you think through how to do that, or do you go look? We're we're doing it. 
and then we're going to have the, the fallout. First of all, it's always we're doing it. And candidly, I don't think twice about what my sponsors care about before we're assigning stories or Do telling you hear stories. From them? To be honest, and everyone thinks this is a lie, very, very rarely. Our revenue team is amazing, and they basically go to these sponsors ahead of time and before they're signing any deal, and they say, look, just want to be clear, you know, you were paying to message our audience. You were absolutely not paying to have your thumb on the scale. I mean, I have can recall more experiences of thumb on the scale, candidly, in the for-profit space than uh-huh. we've experienced in a decade. Because it the exists Texas everywhere oh, in different course. forms, and sometimes it's super explicit. We This sponsor is unhappy with this story. You you may or may not hear about it. Sometimes you don't need to hear about it because it's clear that whoever owns the publication feels one way or another. And regardless of what you do, you sort of adjust your coverage accordingly. You know, early in the days of the Tribune, uh, I was an investigative reporter and I wrote a story about a hospital system where a woman had mistakenly had her legs amputated below the knee. She went in for one procedure. She came out Uh. with quite another. And as I was about to hit publish on that story, uh, I was looking, you know, for the people, how we disclose who our donors are. And I was like, oh, shit, you know, this hospital system is is a donor to the Tribune, a sizable one. It didn't stop us from running the story at all. You know, and and the moment the story ran, the hospital system called our revenue team and said, uh, we're pulling back our advertising. You know, the great news about having a really diversified revenue set of revenue streams is that this is not a crisis. Right. Uh, The next year, they re-upped their corporate underwriting. I mean, I think the um, having their message uh, reach our audience was more important to them than us writing about the woman who had her legs amputated. Yeah. If we weren't doing a podcast, there'd be all kinds of off-color jokes I can make, but we're doing a podcast, so. We'll skip them. We'll keep going. Can we talk about about, about where you started at the Tribune and now you're running the show? So you were recruited. You were one of the original seven. You were an investigative reporter. Um, did you think, I'm going to run this thing one day? No, never. I thought I would be a reporter forever. Some days I wish I was still a reporter forever. I mean, I think what happened for me is that I started seeing, you know, leadership gaps or places where I thought our young newsroom could use a little boost. And I think when you start a newsroom from scratch, it's a hell of a lot easier to uh, rise through the ranks and, you know, shape it, make it your own. I'm in love with Austin. Texas is a dreamy place for me. It's where I wanted to be. It's where I wanted to live and get married and have kids. And I knew in order to do that, I had to make the Texas Tribune grow with me. And so I did. Often this happens in lots of different kinds of organizations. I see the journalism version of it, which is you've got a lot of people who are good at being reporters. And often that means they're working on their own. Often it means they don't really respond well to people asking them or telling them what to do. Um, And then if they're really good, they often get promoted into management slash editorship. And I think it's impossible to be a good editor if you haven't been a good reporter. But being a good reporter doesn't make you a good editor or a good manager. So how did you figure out how to do that? trial and error, I wasn't a good editor and I wasn't a good manager. I mean, I knew, I I sort of identified what we needed, but going from a a newsroom that is very democratic, where you're working super closely with your peers, stepping immediately into a management role, you know, in your late 20s, surrounded by all these colleagues you've had in the press corps, it was not an easy or natural transition. Um, I'm, you know, I'm lucky that I had managers who I worked for who taught me a lot, but I stepped in it. (laughs) <laughs> you read books, you take classes, you uh, just, just screw up a lot. I screwed up a lot. Yeah. I screw, I hurt feelings. I got my own feelings hurt. Uh, I went to, you know, some different sets of leadership training. I talked a lot to my mom, who is a longtime newsroom manager. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, the truth is I learned what not to do 
<laughs> by mistakenly doing it. Yes, I have done that as well. And mostly what I've learned is I shouldn't be a manager. Um, <laughs> but I, I, the periods where I've done it, I, and I've gotten better at it over time, um, in case I ever have to do it again, um, you realize when you get on a plane— why everyone's reading Who Moved My Cheese or any other sort of businessy management book because it turns out that thing is really hard. And the reason most people are bad at it is because it's really hard. And even if you go get an MBA, it doesn't teach you how to actually be a manager. No. And I think, you know, to me, the most challenging thing about the news business right now is that all of these reporters are taught how to ask such hard questions. But we haven't been asking those same hard questions of the people who run the business. Um, And I think, you know, we got into some serious hot water because journalists were so focused on the journalism that we weren't focused on sort of the broader questions around, you know, how are we going to sustain this going forward. And, you know, look at the trends, look at the way this is going. You know, is there a different way to do what we do? And I think, you know, if I look at journalism schools and I think about the sort of disservice that we're doing when we're not teaching journalists to be entrepreneurs, you know, yes, we need the next great generation of investigative reporters, but we also even more desperately need the next generation of news entrepreneurs. There's that. And I add to that, just having some basic sort of numeracy and literacy about when period, but also about how your business works. It used to be a a point of pride for journalists to have literally no idea how the business side works, never talk to them. Exactly. You know, and in a lot of ways, it's good. You have that buffer, so you don't know that the hospital is unhappy with your reporting. You can go ahead and do it. The real world, you do need to know about it. Um, Related to that, uh, are you guys unionized? We're not unionized, no. Do you imagine that's coming? Uh, You know, Texas is a right-to-work state. We've um, felt none of that pressure from our newsroom. I think we have really uh, aggressively tried to give our team uh, everything they they could want or need preemptively from, you know, four months of maternity and paternity leave to, you know, um, a hefty benefits package. I think if that comes our way, we'll cross that bridge when it comes to it, but it hasn't yet. Do you think that disclosure we were talking about where they can literally see how many pennies are coming in, what you're getting paid, what everyone else is getting paid, um, that helps employee morale? Or do you think that's something where they go, oh, look, there's this much money coming in. We should have a piece of that. I think, I mean, I would like to believe that it has helped employee morale because we are practicing what we preach. I mean, we, you know, we write about conflicts of interest. We demand transparency from elected officials in Texas. And I think if we weren't turning around and doing the same, you know, everywhere from the, you know, our 990s to our own salaries to, you know, the money coming in the door from corporations and sponsors, I feel super comfortable about where we are and about how transparent we are. And so you took over sort of day-to-day leadership when? Uh, so I had been the editor. So we have, you know, the the slot basically beneath editor-in-chief. The editor-in-chief had long been our CEO, Evan Smith. Right. And um, while I was on maternity leave about three years ago, uh, Evan called and said, I want to meet with you. And I went and met with him, you know, with a kid probably like under a curtain in my <laughs> arms. Uh, and he said, I w- want to give you my editor-in-chief title upon your return from maternity leave. What's the catch? Uh, I mean, of course, more work, right? Uh-huh. But, I mean, no catch other than I am so lucky to work with the kind of male allies who will take their own senior titles and hand them off to you because while you're on maternity leave, no less, uh, because they think you're the right person to lead the organization. So it's interesting you mentioned gender there. But 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 so we can go back to that in a second. So, But just to be clear, Evan is the person who's most closely associated with the Texas Tribune, famous editor of Texas Monthly. Absolutely. Um, brilliant editor, brilliant entrepreneurial mind. Uh, I mean, truly a new media genius. And so he's out there. He's in many ways still the public face of it. Your Google uh, footprint is not that big. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's someone else named Emily Renshaw. Who, uh, she who is. She's like some content. fashion uh, yeah. blogger in Canada. 
How important is it for you to be the face or more closely associated with it or, or more public? Not, I'm very glad I'm having you here, by the way. But, <laughs> but um, I think a lot of people won't know that you're the editor-in-chief of Texas Tribune. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not important to me, honestly, because uh, what we're doing right now, uh, like, I'm a little sweaty even sitting here having this conversation with you. I don't you love— look comfortable. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't love being on stage. I don't love, you know, uh, being the one sort of running the dog and pony show. What I love is the behind the scenes. I love working with the journalists. I love advancing their work. I love evangelizing for the work we do. I've gotten increasingly comfortable talking about the business model because I deeply, deeply believe in this nonprofit model for what we do. I don't need or want to be the face of, of an organization. I want to be the one making the trains run on time and, and making the Tribune the best model for our local news, nonprofit journalism that exists. You don't look uncomfortable. You look very relaxed. But I'm going to give you one more quick break so we can hear from an underwriter or a sponsor or maybe someone who works at Vox Media. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm back here with Emily Ramshaw, who runs, I'm going to say runs, Texas Tribune. Um, Let's talk about the nonprofit model. And you say you believe deeply in it. John Thornton, who was one of the original founders, is now creating a new fund to sort of replicate what you guys are doing. Um, One of the bits of conventional wisdom I've heard about the Tribune for a long time is this is amazing. It's this little miracle. And it kind of can only work in Texas um, both because of the interest in Texas politics and also there's just a ton of money floating around there. And maybe you could do this in a couple other states, but it'd be very hard to sort of imagine replicating this in 50 states, let alone smaller communities. I agree with the fact that replicating exactly the Tribune model uh, in all these other communities is a non-starter. Communities have very different identities. We, I mean, look, Texas had a lot of things going for it, you know, starting with this sort of diehard state mentality or state identity, you know, tons of Fortune 500 companies, lots of rich people, and oh, by the way, Evan Smith, who, you know, will not let you say he's a unicorn, but he's basically a unicorn, right? So, I do think Texas was a you know special case. I always wondered if somebody should start one of these in like Tallahassee or something. You know, there is a version of the Texas Tribune in Sacramento. I do think in big wealthy states uh, there is a possibility that the you know very similar model to the Texas Tribunes can work. A couple other like Minnesota has MinPost, but there yep. none of them have the, the are nearly as robust as what you guys are doing. Right. Um, none of them are on your scale. That's true. That said, I do think there are models that work in virtually any community. And you know, I at the start of this podcast I 
talked about the Tribune's five revenue streams. I think, you know, there are versions of the Tribune that work that are three of those revenue streams that go, you know, maybe heavier on membership and less heavy on philanthropy um, or a version that's, you know, heavier on foundation support but less heavy on membership. I mean, I do think that there are equations, there are formulas that work in a lot of different communities. I think the hardest thing to replicate is having, again, that news entrepreneur who can take the risks and figure it out. What do you think the the sort of minimum sort of audience slash density for something like this to work would be? I mean, how small of a community could support something as good as what you guys do? I mean, I'll just give you a couple of examples of folks who are doing great work. There's something called VT Digger that's, you know, Vermont does not exactly have a huge and robust population. Mm -hmm. But VT Digger is self-sustaining. It's, um, you know, an investigative outfit. It's doing phenomenal work. Uh, There's an organization in Memphis that's getting off the ground. There's a version of this in Seattle. I mean, there there are 70 different news organizations that are in the Tribune's model, the sort of nonprofit model uh, that are across the country right now that have cropped up since the Tribune did. So, I mean, that's a lot of people trying a lot of different things. And, and trying a lot of things is good. I mean, a lot of the times when I, I'll talk about local or write about local, I'll get a note from someone saying, well, I, I have a thriving local whatever and over here and I won't name the community. Take a look at it. And I'll click on it. And I'm glad they're running a business that seems to be working for them. But it's not a newspaper as I would imagine it. Right. It's, it probably has some restaurant news and maybe some some real estate news, and it's not unhelpful, but it's certainly not going to replace a failed newspaper or tell or even do basic accountability. And then similarly, I've written about Patch, which you know was a failure so. at AOL and is now apparently a successful business. We write about it. Someone writes about it once a year, how it's been turned around. And in some cases, they're they're doing useful work, but again, they're not really replicating um, what what we imagine a local newspaper would be. It just seems like. That model is gone. Um, so this is the most pessimistic view that we've heard for and sometimes Dean Piquet from New York Times just came out and said in five years most of the local newspapers are going to be dead. Do you think that's God, fair? I hope not. I, I, I mean, that seems extreme to me, especially because I think, you know, as, as dire as these situations are getting, you know, there are some folks who are stepping in to try to bail out these news organizations uh, and, you know, really treat them as philanthropic endeavors. You know, I mean, I think— <laughs> Obviously, the Washington Post and the L.A. Times are, you know— It's um, helpful to have a billionaire around It's you. super helpful to have a billionaire. There are more billionaires out there, believe it or not, you know. And by the way, we're sort of—each billionaire who buys a publication, we're waiting to see well, what kind of billionaire is this going to be. Jeff Bezos seems to have been very good for the Post. The L.A. Times owner seems to be good, although we really don't know a lot about him, so we're going to find so out. So far, so good. People are pretty happy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think I am very, very scared and pessimistic about what happens with these regional dailies because they're really— as any, isn't anything in place to, you know, uh, pick up the slack when when and if those folks shudder. I mean, you know, there's nothing uh, backing up the Dallas Morning News. The Dallas Morning News is an institution. You know, the people there are forces of nature. Um, I am, you know, I'm, I'm very afraid what's going to happen in these communities. There's a sort of sneering, and they replace the sneering with, with a more politic uh public-facing attitude here from the Googles and Facebooks and the tech people in general, and they say, but I mean, think I think it generally is, I'm going to speak for a big swath of, of, of the people, is one, you guys existed because of this weird uh, monopoly that shouldn't have existed, and people were really going for your classifieds, you've been disrupted, everyone gets disrupted, you got to get over it. Two, you're, you're very self-important. Three, if I look at tech meme or some version of that that covers digital news, there's a ton of people who are, there's a, you know, 
dozens and dozens and dozens of people at the Apple WWDC event as we're speaking right now. Um, there certainly doesn't seem to be any any problem uh, covering things like Apple. So obviously this is just a market issue. So given that I've created a straw man here, how do you respond to what the tech folks think of the newspaper problem? Uh, what the tech folks think of the newspaper problem? How, I mean, who they blame it on? Here, let me, let me, let me I'll, I'll, it's not fair for you to, to fight an imaginary person. Google and Facebook in the last couple of years have each come out and said, we're each going to donate 300 million, or you know, donate's right. the wrong word. We're going to fund a journalism project with $300 million. It's amazing how they both came to that sum. Um, <laughs> Do you think that is going to significantly help our journalism crisis? No, I don't think it's going to significantly. I mean, and, you know, honestly, those kinds of numbers are basically rounding errors for yeah. for tech companies like that. So, you know, I do, I feel like there's a little bit of, and, you know, both Google and Facebook have been uh, helpful to the Texas Tribune in that regard. Like, you know, we've all been recipients of this kind of funding um, in bits and pieces. I think at the end of the day, though, I don't turn around and say, you know, the tech companies, the Googles and Facebooks are responsible for the, you know, decline of this industry. Have they hastened it? Sure, absolutely. You know, did uh, Craigslist hasten it? Sure, yep. absolutely. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I do blame this on corporate greed, and I do blame this on hedge funds, and I do blame it on, you know, the shareholders' demand for unreasonable profits in an industry that it's a public service. Because newspapers used to be a very good business. Wildly In profitable. the old days. Yes. And the internet did blow that up, right? Uh, yes. I mean, yes. But, uh, again, I think, you know, it, it hastened it, but I don't think that it's appropriate to say this is where the blame fully lies. And how much of the blame do we put on people who consume news? Um, how much responsibility should a local, should a person in a community saying, I, it is important for me to buy a newspaper or subscribe to whatever it's going to be called um, because someone needs to cover City Hall, even if I never open it? I, I don't blame them. I, I honestly think that the blame lies on us for not making a valuable enough product that they uh, were desperate to consume, so desperate to consume that they would pay for it. And, you know, again, I'm going to go back to I think the nonprofit model works because we are saying that this is a public service. You're entitled to this. And I think folks are entitled to understand their state and local government. Uh, I think we're responsible for finding out the funding and the mechanism to get them that information so that they can be active participants in our society. Are you following the city at all? The new, I am new following the city, startup? and I'm really excited about it. It's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, again, like that's that's one really promising model uh, in this space. So we're seeing more and more of those. Yeah, it's really heartening to me to read it. Um, it's also scary because they're doing you know just nuts and bolts reporting. This community board spent twenty six thousand dollars of a forty three thousand dollar grant that was supposed to go to whatever, and they use it to buy a new car for this guy who's been running the thing forever. Think about how many communities don't have any exactly. of that anymore. And I mean, if you look at news deserts, you know. Know, why we're so dependent on the regional news organizations is because they're the only ones left covering city halls anywhere. I'll get on my soapbox here. You imagine what, what happens when you just don't turn the lights on exactly. for a very long time. Just the basic accountability of going to the state house or the cop shop or wherever and saying what's happening today and talking to people. You don't have to do great Woodward and Bernstein stuff. You just have to be around. If you think about the 50 states out there, I imagine very, very few of them have anyone uh, routinely knocking on the door at the state capitol. I mean, legislatures, so much crazy shit happens behind the scene at state legislatures. And I just think there are so few reporters who are doing that anymore. Can I break confidence in something? We both attended a, a fancy journalism conference a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, about the business of news. Thank you to Jessica and Kevin and Ben for organizing it. And one of the things a bunch of us talked about is how we're going to, to grant-making institutions saying we'd like some of that money. 
Yes, and, I, and I you, quickly piped up and said, "You would you for-profit people not play in our sandbox? Thank you. So explain what you mean. I think that the for-profit folks have started to realize that, you know what, um, we also are a public service and the nonprofits don't need to be the only ones going to foundations there's and philanthropists. There's a pile of money, a yeah. pile of money. We'd like some of it. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a pile, but there's some money. And I think that, you know, you've seen news organizations – for-profit news organizations looked to their less lucrative lines of business or of coverage and said, you know what? God, it's really expensive to produce immigration coverage, and we don't have a lot of sponsors footing the bill for that. Why don't we go to the Ford Foundation or the MacArthur Foundation and put in a grant request? And you've seen uh, those grant requests being taken seriously and major for-profit news organizations, um, you know, reaping the benefits. Do you think that's not appropriate for a for-profit to ask for money to uh, fund something? I actually think it's totally appropriate. I think, as you said, it's money there for the taking. I think I think, you know, in some regard, some of these for-profit news organizations are in more dire straits than some of the nonprofits are. Uh, you know, I said it tongue-in-cheek because obviously, you know, it's a major part of our business line. And so the harder it gets for the Texas Tribune to access those grants because the Vox Medias are accessing those grants, not that that's uh, in the foreseeable future. but I'm not saying a word. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it makes the field more competitive. That said— I'm cool with that. We need to be able to compete and prove that what we're doing is just as meaningful as what you're doing. So you've got a you've got a strategic goal, right? Goes through 2025. Yes. What happens in 2025? Where where where, <laughs> where, where what what does the Tribune? We look reset like? the clock. Uh, I hope in 2025 the Tribune uh, is an organization that is uh, read by an audience that is as diverse as Texas. One of my biggest goals in our organization right now is around diversity. Diversity um, in hiring, obviously, because that's that's one path to get there. If your journalists don't look like Texas, your audience certainly isn't going to look like Texas. But we are really working aggressively to diversify our readership, to diversify the geography in which our work is being consumed, you know, outside of Austin and Houston and Dallas. You know, we want to serve all Texans where they are. So we've got a lot of priorities in that space. We've got some, you know, revenue goals. Um, we have some technology goals. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty ambitious plan. Talk a little bit more about diversity. Why is it important to have a diverse newsroom, especially for what you're doing? It's crucial to have a diverse newsroom uh, so that your story selection, so that your story coverage, so that your frame on the stories you're telling more accurately it reflects, you know, the people you're covering. I mean, Does I— Does that happen organically? If you achieve a, a, say, racial diversity mix of X, Y, Z, do your stories sort of automatically sort of change or, or do you need—and or do you need—are you requiring the, the new diverse hires to sort of pipe up and say, this is right, this is wrong? No, well, first of all, I think it's it requires a lot more than just hiring people of color, people, you know, a, a more diverse newsroom in order to reach more diverse audiences. You know, we have partnership strategies for where our stories are getting placed that really emphasizes that, too. You know, or here's the racial makeup of this community, and this is a community where we're trying to make great strides. You know, there are, there are all kinds of ways that you can do this. But, um, look, I'm I'm a white woman. I don't know what I don't know, even. I mean, I think that—and and I've been given incredible— opportunities and incredible um, chances at success that that are truly deeply rooted in my privilege and my upbringing. And I want our newsroom to be filled with people who can teach me to better lead in that regard. So we're promoting people uh, of color who are on our staff into more senior leadership positions where they can help drive our editorial decision-making in our coverage and, and be empowered to pipe up and say, you know what, the way you're thinking about this is totally wrong, or uh, you've really missed the mark on that. And 
by the way, it's humbling, but we have people on that staff who, I mean, I talked to you about lessons and the kind of things you learn as a manager. I am so lucky. I have people of color on my staff who are totally comfortable coming into my office and saying, hey, the way that was said in that meeting totally came out wrong, and that's why. So diversity on our staff is deeply important, diversity of our coverage um, and, and diversity of our readers. You know, if you are too narrowly focused on just what's happening in the in the Capitol building up the street, uh, your readership is going to be overwhelmingly white. That's That doesn't reflect on Texas. Let's say I'm in state X to be named later. I think this is a really good idea. I want to start my own nonprofit. How do I get going? What's, what's the one thing I need? Uh, do you have an entrepreneur? Are you just a journalist? Because if you're just a journalist, I would stop and say, er, find your entrepreneur. I mean, the reason the Tribune worked is because there was a great business mind at the helm, not just a great journalist at the helm. All right. That's kind of a unicorn, right? I don't know. I mean, I think there are people doing really entrepreneurial things in a lot of different communities. You know, they may not be a traditional journalist. They may not be what you, you know, think of as a senior investigative reporter uh-huh. or some or, you know, a traditional editor in chief. Find those allies, build out a team of three or four people where, you know, one of those people has that deep uh, expertise. Because by the way, not to denigrate anyone's work, sometimes what we do is not rocket science, right? <laughs> you go ask someone what they said, you take notes, and you write down a version of it. And, you know, I actually don't think being a news entrepreneur is rocket science either. I think it's coming up with a formula that works. It's uh, looking at the the mix of potential revenue streams that could work in your community, testing them one after the other, uh, looking at what everybody else is doing and trying to pick the best and uh, most creative things that are happening in other newsrooms. I mean, we learn a lot from news organizations that are half the size of ours, a quarter the size of ours, because they're doing things that are super cool and might work for us. Emily Ramshaw, you make it sound very easy. It's not very easy. But you're doing a great job. I'm trying every day. Thank you for taking time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Emily. Thanks to you guys for listening. And also, thanks to our sponsors. As you know, our business model has our sponsors helping us bring this podcast to you for free. So thank you, sponsors. Recode Media is produced by Golda Arthur. Joel Robbie edits this podcast. Thanks again this week and really every week. Jelani Carter did some extra work here. Good job, Jelani. If you like this episode, please tell someone else about it. And good news, there's another free episode of Recode Media coming your way very soon. Thanks.